listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Indeed, it's the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw. And my name is Melissa Daw. That's my lovely wife. Hey, everybody. I want to thank everybody so much for listening and uh, for submitting questions. If you want to participate in the podcast, and really, if you don't, then there isn't a podcast, so I would encourage you to participate. Submit your questions and comments by calling 757 757- Seven seven four eight four eight two, or you can text that number. This is my uh, my spiel. I've got it down pretty good, right? Yeah, I'm impressed. Nobody really calls. Well, there there's a few people that have called, but most people email. That's great too. Go to ericdaw.com. E R I C D A W. dot com. Click the contact link, and you can submit a question there. I'll use it as part of the show. You know, one thing, when I started this show out, uh, I really thought that I would get more feedback from other uh, repair people rather than just guitar players. And that's actually starting to happen. I've been hearing a lot from a lot of different builders and, and repair guys all around the country and all around the world, really, which is great. It's Yeah, it's cool to uh, to kind of connect with the community of guitar repairmen and, and builders. Yeah, I, it, it's uh, it just seemed like a natural thing to me that part of the reason why I started the show was because I couldn't find a show like it, and I wanted to listen to a guitar repair podcast, and so I thought, well, I guess I have to start one, right? So now do you listen to this just while you're working and stuff? <laughs> I have. I've listened to it before. You know what I usually do is I'll listen to the previous episode before we tape one so that I know kind of uh, where we are and I know not to repeat something we did last month. Smart. Yeah, I didn't do it this month. Well, if there are any repeats, I blame you. Yeah, really. It's okay. Uh, Next month, which is October, um, if you're listening to this in, in... 2090 then don't worry about this but if you're listening to this before October of 2015 that month will be a special episode of Guitar Repair Horror Stories and I've been getting quite a few submitted I need more if you have a Guitar Repair Horror Story submit it and uh, I'll use it as part of that show Um, and that could be anything from I took my guitar to this shop or this repair guy and he he messed it up way beyond uh, repair Uh, or it could be I repair guitars and you would not believe 
some of the things that I see, right? Or some of the things, I've, some of the worst repairs I've ever had to do were undoing what other people have done to guitars. Just the home, the home technician? I wouldn't even say technician. Just like a guy with a, a guy with an ice pick. <laughs> you know? You have to watch out for that. Yeah. Um, but submit your guitar repair horror stories, and uh, I think that's going to be a fun episode. I've been really laughing about some of the submissions I've been getting. That's going to be a fun episode. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fun. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, and in my hand, I have, fresh off the presses, fretboard journal number 34. It's a beaut. Man, I love this magazine. I gotta tell you, if you haven't checked out the Fretboard Journal, you gotta check it out. Man, it's just amazing. You read this magazine, and, I, and they don't pay me to say this. You know, they're not an advertiser or anything. Just the publisher is just a friend of mine, and uh, it's printed in my hometown here. And uh, I don't know. I just I really have an affinity for this magazine. You know, you you read some of the other. Um, I mean, I would call it a high-end magazine. You read some of the other high-end guitar magazines, and uh, this one is definitely written by people who know guitars. There's not a bunch of fluff in here. There's not, you know, some some of those other ones, they have, like, it's like the articles are like, here's an article about cigars, here's an article about a Ferrari, and then here's Kevin Bacon's guitar collection. Okay, well, this magazine is not written about somebody who cares about guitars. You know, <laughs> this is just somebody trying to make a high-end magazine so they can sell ads. The beautiful thing about the Fretboard Journal is the content is king. This is, I mean, the pictures, the content, the articles, and it's just chock full of information. Each one is like a book. I mean, that's more than a magazine, man. Oh yeah, for sure. And. It's obviously written by people who really have a passion about guitars. So if you haven't checked it out, you really should. It's it's actually the only guitar magazine I even subscribe to. It's really a it's, wow. Yeah, it's really a good one. Other cool. than all the cat, the free catalogs I get, like Stuart McDonald. Oh right. Yeah, that's not exactly a subscription though. When you said that, I thought you were going to stop at all the free cats. No. You get lots of free cats in the mail. I don't get free cats. I, <laughs> Other than that neighbor cat that keeps coming around. Oh, yeah. That I hate thing. that cat. Oh, you don't hate that no, cat. No, I don't hate the cat. It's a nice the cat. The neighbors might listen to the podcast, you know. Sorry, Jen. Sorry, Sarah. Uh, that's a very nice cat. We do like yeah, the we cat. Do like. It's a good cat. The other thing I wanted to mention is I've had a couple of emails about, and I'm not going to read them. I'm not going to include them in, in the, uh, the show, but um, a couple of guys have asked me, hey, mention on the show when your next gig is, because I want to be able to come see you, or I want if I'm in town, sometimes I go to Seattle, I want to know when your gig, your next gigs are. I don't gig, guys. I, I just, I haven't for years. Uh, the, I have recorded music out there, and I know some of you have emailed me and told me you bought my CDs and all that stuff, but it's not something I promote, it's not something I even do anymore. Thanks for your interest. It's really I'm flattered that you're that you asked, but I I just don't even gig anymore. I might again someday, and if I ever do, certainly I'll talk about it on the show. But um, I just gave it up. I think I burned myself out. I was playing a lot. 
When I first met Eric, he was playing like 150 nights a, week, um, a year. I thought you were going to say a month. Well, I was going to say a week at first. 150 nights a month. No, that's a, an exaggeration. I think I, at the height I was playing about 100 nights a year. Well, that's still a lot. It's a lot for not touring, and I wasn't touring. That was all regional, you know, within 100 miles. That's quite a bit. Yeah. It was uh, fun, but boy, oh boy. We like to relax at home and build guitars. That and, you know, I still play. I play at home. I play for my little boy and he dances all around. It's it's adorable. It's, it's Yeah, yeah, it is. It's fun. Yeah. Anyway, let's get right into the questions, Sounds shall we? Letters. We get letters. We get snacks and snacks of letters. First time listener, long time caller. Hey, that. how does that work? Yeah, I don't think that's right i love the show keep rocking it as a total novice when it comes to equipment repair and more it's amazing how much i learn from each and every episode i'm not about to undertake a major repair but your show is making me a more well-informed musician and guitarist and for that i thank you i thank you sam and dave yeah my question go ahead i'm sorry (laughs) my question I acquired a Gretsch Historic Series G3166 in 2008. I know it's not super collectible, but I've enjoyed the heck out of it. I use flat-wound strings for the jazzy sound. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Jazzy. I like flat-wounds. Anytime a gearhead or guitar-type person comes up to ask about it, one of the things they almost all say is, probably want to upgrade those pickups, hey? I suppose they are right, but I would like to ask your expertise. Are the stock pickups on this model unacceptable? I mean, it sounds okay most of the time. If I were to upgrade the pickups on this guitar, what would your recommendation be? Thanks, I'll hang up and listen to your response now. Your pal, Beltran in Boise. Beltran. Beltran. How's it going, buddy? Thanks for submitting a question. You know, um... I think what happens is a lot of people spend more time thinking about guitars than they do playing guitars, and they, they, I, I think a lot of people uh, spend a lot of time on forums about how uh, how you should replace the pickups in every guitar you buy, and I don't know, it's just not necessarily something you need to do. Now, if you're unhappy with the way the pickups sound, yeah, swap them out. Absolutely. And it's not an unreasonable upgrade, because... I think that's a Chinese guitar or a Korean guitar. It's Asian, whatever. It's not um, the highest quality pickups. So, yeah, there's certainly upgrades to be made. If you wanted to, it's going to probably run you two or three hundred bucks by the time you buy the pickups and have them installed by a pro. Uh, so, if it's worth it to you and you want better tone out of that guitar, it's certainly something to consider. Uh, and if you want my recommendation on what kind of pickups, I'd probably suggest TV Jones. Uh, I he, This guy submitted a picture of the guitar as well, and I think what you'll need is the English mount, TV Jones English mount. Cool. Yeah, TV Jones makes Gretsch-style pickups. Everybody knows that. Do you know that? Uh, no. Oh. Sorry. His name's Tom Jones. Everybody but me 
knows that. But he couldn't call it Tom Jones Pickups because everybody would be like, whoa, Tom Jones makes pickups now? Who's Tom Jones? It's not unusual to oh, be loved by anyone. That Tom Jones. Yeah. Anyway, I would probably recommend TV Jones or Lawler. Jason Lawler makes a lovely Gretsch-style pickup. That would be a, 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 a very nice choice as well. Uh, what about a local maker uh, named Eric Daw? Does he make... Oh, yeah. Well, not... You, you should, I, I would. I mean, if you, if you wanted me to make pickups for that guitar, I would. But uh, it's not really my wheelhouse. It's not really my expertise. Okay. If you had a, if you had a Telecaster-style guitar, or if you needed Strat-style pickups... Or even P90s, or, I, you know, I make a lot of different pickups, but, yeah, Filtertron style, not really, not really what I do. Not that I couldn't, because I could, but I don't. There you go. So you might as well stick with the guys that do, and that, and that are, that are good at it. All right, thanks, Beltran. <laughs> thanks, Beltran. That's an alias. That's gotta be. And if it's not, my sincere... <laughs> My God, my sincere apologies, Beltran. I'm so sorry. You know, I really got to stop being such a jerk on the show. I've listened to a couple of previous episodes and I'm going... Ouch. Yeah, this is not good. I think what happens is I'm, you know, I'm sitting here in my pajamas. I'm full of hubris and wine. And I'm doing a podcast and I'm saying... Those brand of strings are garbage. If you use brand X, you, you're just an idiot. I'm going to try to do less of that. And here's the other thing. If I've ever offended you because of some guitar opinion I have, hey, it's just a guitar, so lighten up. It's all cool. We're all buddies. I'm still your friend. And opinions, you know what they say about opinions. Everybody has them. Yeah, and really, your opinions are just as valid as mine, so... <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Next. Hey, Eric. Hope you and Melissa are doing well. I'm having an issue with the end pin jack for the acoustic guitar pickup you recently installed for me, and I'm hoping you can help. Feel free to use this question for your podcast if you think it would be of interest to others. Here it is. And here it is. Basically, the end pin jack is coming loose, and I'm not able to tighten it down. I tried for a couple of hours today to get a decent hold on the jack from the inside, but I can't get my arm far enough into the sound hole to grasp the nut on the inside of the guitar. I've tightened down the outer nut as much as I can, but the jack is still wiggling around, which I know can't be good. I read some tips online that suggested using an Allen key or a punch to hold the threaded jack in place through the parallel holes while tightening down the nut on the outside, but that didn't seem to work either. Any suggestions on how I might fix this on my own? I feel like I must be missing something obvious here. Or is the solution really finding someone with arms, hands small enough to reach in, to reach all the way inside and tighten down the inner nut? Let me know if you have any ideas. Thanks for your help. Lincoln. Your arms are too fat, son. <laughs> <laughs> It's the kinder, gentler version of me. Is this, this is the... I'm going to be a nicer guy from now on. I'm so sorry. That's rude. That's not what I meant to say. Lincoln's a good friend of mine, so I can say that. I wouldn't just say that to any 
Just, just to I mean, Lincoln. Lincoln knows I'm kidding. Don't you, Lincoln? Uh, those are tough, man. So this is, an, this is a jack that goes in acoustic guitars, and it sits in the end block. There's a little block of wood on the butt end of an acoustic guitar that kind of, everything is kind of glued to. The two sides come together at the end there. They're glued together, and the top and the back are all glued to this block. And normally there's a strap button there or an end pin that you put your strap on. And when, when you put an acoustic pickup in, in an acoustic guitar, you put in a special jack that doubles as a strap button. And it's a couple inches long so that it can go through the end block. And then it has a nut on the inside, and it has a, a nut on the outside, and then it has another nut that's a strap button. So, Lincoln, what your problem here is is the nut on the inside is too loose because there's a ledge on that on the jack so that it it's a threaded rod basically and then it steps down to a smaller threaded rod <clears throat> and you need to make sure that the jack the transition from the larger threads to the smaller threads is still inside the block so that when you tighten up that outer nut it's tightening up against the guitar instead of tightening up against that ledge. So you have to tighten up the inner nut. And to do that, you can't really reach it. Just reaching your arms in, that's just about impossible. You really have to take it out, pull it out through the sound hole, turn the nut a few turns so that it's right. And there's kind of some guesswork involved, like, oh, I hope that the nut's in the right spot now. Reinstall it, and then tighten everything down and see if it'll tighten up snug. Does that make sense to you? Um, kind of? Were you I think paying I'd attention, though? A, yeah, I was, uh, I was drawing a picture. Yeah, I mean, he didn't... He Lincoln understands how the jack works. I'm just yeah. using this question... Well, and anybody, I feel like anybody who this question would be informative for would help them. Well, and if you don't know that there's, yeah, if you don't know that there's a nut on the inside and you're just trying to tighten the nut on the outside and you can't get anywhere with it, it's helpful to know. You really, you have to take that jack out, adjust the inner nut, and then reinstall it. And getting that thing back through the block by sticking your arm in the sound hole is pretty tricky. Uh, one thing you can do, um, I've got a special little tool I use that, to do that, but one thing you can do is take a take a long file or a chop, something like a chopstick or a pen, stick it through the hole in the end block, and then stick your arm in the sound hole and put slide the jack onto the chopstick, and then you can pull it back through. Oh, that's really smart. Pull, yeah, pull it out of the end block. Because otherwise you're going to be sitting there fumbling with it for 20 minutes and you're going to hate yourself. Or me. or You're going to hate something. You're going you're gonna to curse. So I hope that explains it. Um, it's the nut. It's the inner nut. You have to tighten it up. That's the bottom line. Was there another question in that question? I love it when these guys slipped nine questions in their question. Um, I think that that was... I mean, how do, how do I fix this on my own? There you go. And do I need to find somebody with small arms? Yes. <laughs> All right, we're moving on. 
hi. Thanks, thanks, Lincoln. Oh yeah, thank you, Lincoln. Hi, Eric and Melissa. I absolutely love your podcast and wish it would air weekly, if we had the time, and maybe one day we will. Or if you'd like to sponsor it. Oh yeah. For the low, low price of no, I don't know. Of our mortgage. Yeah. My question is, what is the difference between a 500k and a 250k potentiometer, particularly when it comes to the tone pots? Also, I have noticed some pots are significantly smaller in size than normal 500k, yet they aren't labeled as 250k or 500k. Are these the same as 500k, just smaller? A second question. I have played Les Paul's American-made PRS and a few other of the top a few other top-of-the-line guitars. Recently, I acquired a U.S.-made Jackson. It feels superior to the aforementioned brands in many ways. Is there something unique that they are doing, or is it just that it fits me perfectly? By the way, and I'm sure I'm not the first to mention this, but Melissa has such a soothing voice. <laughs> I'm not making this up, guys. This, this is actually is part of the email. It's, yeah. I truly love the show, and I appreciate the time and effort you put into it especially with a newborn taking up a great deal of your time. I am a subscriber for you, and not just because of the angelic voice accompanying you. He goes on to talk about what a great dancer I am. <laughs> That's not and true. And singer. Here in New, New Orleans, or Nolens, as they say it, right? Yeah. Here in New Orleans, we have a lazy tongue, and we don't pronounce words clearly. We omit letters and have created our own way of communicating that is difficult for those visiting from other places to understand, which is another reason why I greatly admire the pronunciation of words as they should be by both of you. Thank you so much, Steve from Nolens. Thanks for the question, Stephen. And I actually did edit that down a little bit. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. Did you read the full... I don't, he basically I, wants you to read books on tape and sing him lullabies and. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Stephen. Uh. So the difference between a 250k and a 500k potentiometer is very simple. You know, a potentiometer is is a resistor, and that is just exactly what it sounds like. It resists the flow of electricity. It, it resists the flow of electrons, but they still flow, right? And uh, how much it resists is measured in ohms, right? So right. a 250K potentiometer is a 250,000 ohm resistor that has... A, uh, a sweep on it that's you know when you so when you turn the knob there's a little sweeper in there that goes across the path and so you can adjust it you know down from uh, you know basically no resistance there'll still be a little bit of resistance all the way up to 250k or 500k depending on what uh, rating the pot is right so that's the technical explanation. Uh, as far as what it means um, in tone and volume pots, uh, the greater the rating. So a 500K pot actually 
um, lets more of the signal through. Because even when your pot is turned all the way up, so your volume, you imagine your volume knob, it's turned all the way up, it still has a little bit of uh, uh, resistance in there because the resistor on one side is connected to ground. And so this little trickle is going through your pot and over to ground. And it's the high frequencies that get shunted off to ground first. I'm trying to explain this in a really simplified way. I hope it makes sense. Anyway, um, so if you use a 500k pot, it will let more high frequencies through than a 250k pot will, even when they're turned all the way up. It's a subtle difference, but it's a difference. That's why, you know, with Fender-style guitars, we use 250k pots because their pickups are so bright that those those pots kind of rein it in a little bit and make it a little easier on your ears. 500k pots are brighter. We use them with humbucker pickups generally because they're a darker-sounding uh, pickup, and you can use those to brighten them up a little bit. You can use one-meg pots to brighten them up. And for a while, Fender used one-meg pots in tellies. You know, that's a really bright... That's a really bright guitar, you know. Anyway, there it's not life-changing differences, but there are subtle subtle differences in the tone when you go from a 250k or a 500k or a 1 meg ohm pot. Hope that made sense. And uh when you run across those little tiny pots that don't have any writing on them, those are usually pretty junky Asian-made pots that I, I would I would change those out if it's a guitar you care about. But they just don't have an ohm value. I mean, what's what's that? Well, about? Uh, usually, you know, when we're talking, about, I mean, if you if you look inside a Fender guitar or a Gibson guitar, or if you look at a CTS pot, it'll usually say on there if they're good quality pots, it'll usually say 250k or 500k or whatever. Um, if you open up like a Chinese guitar, the pots don't say anything. They're just mm. they're they're about the size of a dime, where like a a normal CTS pot is about the size of a quarter. Mm. They're just tiny little pots, and they're kind of crappy. They're not that great. And if you're ever curious. Uh, about a pot and uh, you don't know the the value rating you can you can stick an ohm meter across the two outer lugs and and it'll tell you 250k 500k one meg whatever cool yeah that's that's a great excuse to buy a an inexpensive ohm meter you'll be the envy of all your friends with this you know I mean come on you whip that thing out on a gig and test a cable with it, your bass player is going to be like, "Wow, man, this guitar player's got it going on. He's got like scientific instruments." You must be a professional. Yeah. Uh, and what about this uh, U.S.-made Jackson that he's talking about? Oh, some people love them. You know, I mean, they make good quality stuff. It's not uh, uh, my favorite, but it doesn't have to be, man. It sounds like it that it fits you great, and that's really. All there is to it. I mean, American-made Paul Reed Smiths. He he mentions. He, 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 let's. I'll read what he says. I've played Les Pauls. 
American made Paul Reed Smith and a few other top of the line guitars, but recently I acquired a US made Jackson. It feels superior. Um I don't think that it necessarily is. It's just it's just that it, it fits you better. Maybe you like the uh it probably has a flatter radius, it probably has big frets. Um those are kinda what I call shredder guitars. I don't know. That's that's not meant to be an insult in any way, but that's kind of what that's kind of the music that people use, usually are playing on, on Jackson and Ibanez guitars and guitars like that. It's uh they're the they're your general pointy Floyd Rose, you know, shredder guitars. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. Yeah, thanks Stephen and uh Stop hitting on my wife. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're all good, Stephen. I like you. You're cool. Eric, guitars like the Les Paul Jr., really old Les Pauls, and some PRS models have the older style wraparound combination bridge tailpiece versus the more common two-piece separate tailpiece and tunomatic bridge like it is what on modern Gibsons. I have always steered away from the one-piece bridge tailpiece because I thought with the intonation permanently set, it would be next to possible to get good intonation. On the other hand, purists seem to swear by this setup. I think he meant next to impossible. Oh, yes. What are your thoughts on this? Am I correct steering away from the wraparound one-piece tailpiece and bridge, or am I missing out? Thanks, Glenn in Green Bay. Thanks for the question, Glenn. You know, there's no right way or wrong way, obviously, and uh, what some people love, other people hate. So really, um, really, it's up to you and what you like. But if you want my opinion on it, uh, there are benefits and detriments uh, from both systems. So I kind of like the idea of a single tailpiece. Uh, it's got good, solid contact, you know, with the guitar. There's less moving parts. You know, the more moving parts that that are on the guitar, like the the more moving parts that the that the strings contact, the more chance there is for those parts to vibrate when you pluck a string. And if they can vibrate then they're absorbing string energy rather than letting the string ring out. So a ton of moving parts on your bridge, um, in theory, can kind of be a tone suck. So I like the idea of a single, the wraparound bridge. Uh, I kind of like the idea. There's a couple different versions. There's one that has the lightning bolt across it, and it's pre-intonated. And it's always intonated for a wound G, like anybody uses that anymore. But that's when they designed it, everybody used a wound G, but they, they've really been slow to fix that. Uh, they do make a, a version for plain G strings now. but uh, And then the other version is it just a straight bar. It looks just like the stop bar on a, on a Les Paul, uh, except you just wrap the strings backwards and round over the top of the tailpiece and that's your bridge and i kind of like the idea it's a solid way to do it but as you mentioned the downside of that is um the intonation is a compromise at best it is adjustable the difference between a standard stop bar 
tailpiece and a wraparound tailpiece is that the wraparound tailpiece has two screws that uh, go through uh, the back and hit the studs. So you're able to adjust those screws and adjust where the whole tailpiece sits. And so that way you're able to adjust the intonation a little bit only by moving the entire bridge, but you are able to adjust the intonation. And usually what I like to do is I adjust the A string until it's perfect and then the B string until it's perfect. That way any other string is only one string away from being perfectly set. If you adjust the outer E's, then by the time you get to the D and G, it, it might be pretty far off. But when you go to intonate a wraparound tailpiece, uh, use the A and the B as your bass line. Smart. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so really there's, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm reading over his question again to see if I missed anything. Yeah, are you are you missing anything f by steering away from the wraparound tailpiece? Eh, I don't know. It depends on how picky you are about intonation and how much of a purist you want to be about less moving parts on your guitar. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. There you go. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. This is Jay Boone, owner of Emerald City Guitars in downtown Seattle, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers, not only on the West Coast, but around the world. As we embark on our 20th year of business down here in Pioneer Square, we are striving to continue to bring you great service and great products. We're remodeling our whole store this year, and it's going to be amazing. We're also redoing our website, emeraldcityguitars.com, for our online customers around the world. We'd like to give a big shout-out of appreciation for all your patronage over all the years down here at Emerald City Guitars, and we really strive to continue to bring the best that we can to our customers. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com or visit our shop at 83 South Washington Street in downtown Seattle. Our business line is 206-382-0231, and we're open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Remember, Emerald City Guitars, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers and service and repair. Hi, Eric. Thanks for answering all my dumb questions last time about frets and checking net. I don't remember any dumb questions. Only dumb answers. <laughs> I have another couple questions for the podcast, and I hope they haven't been asked to death already. You've mentioned before how you prefer Diodario strings over lots of others. I wondered specifically what your thoughts are about Elixir strings for electric. I found that I can get a month or so out of a set of Elixirs even when I was gigging a few nights a week without breaking strings, and I like how they don't seem to lose much high end over time. However, I feel like the non-coated strings have a bit more life and brightness in them, but they tend to lose that quicker. So, wondering your thoughts, is it worth paying a bit more for a string that'll last longer versus having to change strings much more often to keep a similar tone? Also, I wondered, as I'm in the Seattle area, do you ever have any pinup guitars in stock if someone wanted to try one out? Thanks again for your podcast. You guys are great. <laughs> Kurt from Seattle. Thanks, Kurt. I swear I did not make that up. That's a He really asked me about my guitars, and I, I appreciate... Uh, you asking about them, Kurt, and the God's honest truth is that I'm having a hard time keeping them in stock. You know, I make about, usually I make two guitars a month, 
They go up for sale at Emerald City Guitars in Seattle, where I work. And uh, the last four or six that I've made have sold so fast that I have I didn't even have time to put them up on my website. The yeah. last two I made sold within a few hours. So I I wish I had time to make more of them, or I wish that I had examples to show people when they come through, because I do get a lot of people in the shop there asking me to try one out, and I don't have any. So, uh, unfortunately, usually, no, I don't have one for you to try out, and I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm going to... I'll see what I can do about changing that in the future, but thanks for asking, and... Uh, well, um, you can sign up for Eric's uh, he email alerts for when guitars are done, and then when you get that email, you better bust your bum down to uh, Emerald <laughs> City to try it out. Try one out. That's not a bad idea. And I've uh, I've updated my website to reflect that. And really, the best way to get a heads up about a pinup guitar, if if you're interested in trying one out in the Seattle area, or if you're interested in purchasing one, and wherever you are, the best way to get a heads up on what's coming up is to sign up for the email alert and you can do that on the website pinupguitars.com or pinupcustomguitars.com either one will get you there you just submit your email there and then about a week before they hit or the the week before they hit the floor at Emerald City Guitars I uh, send out an email about you know here's here's what's coming up sometimes they're already spoken for though so I don't even send out the email because people will call me and say Hey man, what's what's coming? <laughs> what's coming up with pinup guitars? Oh, you know, a blue one with a soft V neck. Okay, I'll take it. You know, and they buy it like a like three weeks before it's even done. Like the paint's not even dry yet. Well, yeah, it's a good problem to have. Thanks, guys, for your interest. I I do appreciate it. Kurt did have a question here. Uh, Elixir strings. Yeah. Um. You remember how this? I was gonna be really nice Opinions. from now on. <laughs> Everybody has them. I don't like elixirs. That's just me. I just don't like them. They they're dipped in plastic, and they feel funny to me. I know that they have the nano web one or whatever that's supposed to is supposed to feel just the same as a non dipped string, but. I don't know. I don't really want my strings dipped in plastic. That's all. I I I really do like Diodarios. They're cheap. They're reliable, and they're just top-notch quality. Um, but man, a lot of people love elixirs, and if you hate changing strings, they will definitely last longer. They absolutely will. They won't corrode as fast, and uh, they um, won't lose their tone as quickly, even though their tone is a little different right out of the box. But, yeah, some people do love them, and they're a totally legitimate string. If you like them, go with them. I, I, a lot of people ask for elixirs, at, at, uh, or they, they'll bring their own set, because I don't even think they, they... We don't even sell those at Emerald City, but they'll bring their own strings, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people bring elixirs. That's great. That's great. It's a totally legitimate string, absolutely. Cool. And if you like them, go with them. All right. Thank you, Kurt. Hi, Eric and Melissa. I'm a hobby builder from Edmonton, Alberta. 
and like many, started listening to your show after Jason plugged it on his FBJ podcast. You owe him a beer. That's what he says. The Fretboard Journal podcast. You know, I do plug his magazine for free on on my show, so I think we're even. But but I think he's got a lot more listeners than I do, so maybe we're not. <laughs> well, Jason, if you're listening, I owe you a beer. <laughs> I am predominantly building McCarty-era set-neck single cuts done the old way with hot hide glue, rule of 18 fret spacing, celluloid inlays, etc. Cool. Sounds cool. Yeah. So I enjoy listening to your sp- perspective as it's heavily Fender-influenced, which is not within my wheelhouse, but centered on the same philosophy of old-world craftsmanship. Also, Melissa is an awesome counterbalance and element to the show, and congrats to you both on the pregnancy. I think so, too. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Do you know what Do you know what rule of 18 fret spacing is? Um, to have 18 frets on the fingerboard? No. I, you'll like this because you're into math. Okay, good. But... Uh, they they used to um this is the this is the mathematical equation that they used to use to figure out fret spacing so you take your string length from the nut to the bridge let's say it's let's say it's 25 and a half okay then you divide that by 18 that is the distance from the nut to the first fret ooh and then you divide the remainder by 18 right. ooh i like that yeah right that's the rule of 18. So then then that that distance from the nut to the first fret, you subtract that from your overall string length, then divide that by 18. That's the distance from the first fret to the second fret. Yeah, I do like that. I like things cool, huh? to be orderly, and that's orderly. The problem with it is, is it's, it's not super accurate. Well. And... About I don't know fifty or or a hundred years ago or I don't even know I I should read up on it because I honestly don't know but they figured out that it's you should actually use like seventeen point eight one five or something like that that's not the real number but it's like that seventeen point eight something huh yeah well I like the rule of eighteen yeah the, but the old school way to do it if, and supposedly Gibson used that in the fifties uh. Which is why, you know, if you ever go to if you ever go to measure the scale length on a Gibson, it's supposed to be twenty four and three quarter. It's it's not. It's like kind of it's like all over the place. Like that. This is not what it's supposed to be. It's close, but I I guess it's because they used rule of eighteen, oh. and you end up with actually a slightly different. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. It's it's all wizardry. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Even though I'm not really that into guitars, that's really interesting to me. I knew you'd dig it. That's why I mentioned it. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I have found the content to be great and look forward to the show taking on more technical guitar geek focus, as some of the topics topics have been a little too on the surface for me, which I understand as you need to appeal to a wide range of listeners. I don't have a particular question, but rather a possible topic. I love learning old things about tools, tooling, and processes, and would be interested to hear your you share or ramble on about what you've come to learn about how and why things were done back in the day at Fender to achieve the results we know and love today, or any other company for that matter. 
Lastly, several shows back, someone had inquired about where to get plans for single-cut type guitars. However, you you were not able to give a recommendation, so I thought I'd chime in as this is my specialty. Cool. BartlettGuitarParts.com is the only place to go, in my opinion. Tom Bartlett's R&D and products are second to none in this arena. Not to mention that his own designs could be straight out of the 50s. I've used his plans and templates in conjunction with my own measurements off my Vintage Junior and other Vintage Gibsons, and they are dead-on accurate and easy to read. Thanks, and keep the podcast coming. Alex. Nice. Alex, thanks so much, man. That's great. Uh, and that's what I love about this podcast is I really didn't have an answer for that question, and Alex came through. Alex from Edmonton, Alberta, recommends BartlettGuitarParts.com for uh, plans uh, for single-cut type guitars. You know, we're talking about we're talking about Gibson-style guitars, but we don't really say that. So we call them single-cut. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. thanks, Alex, for that yeah, recommendation. Thanks. And whoever asked that question a few podcasts ago, I yeah. hope you're listening. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Uh, and he says he'd love to hear me rattle on about... That's all I do, really. Yeah. Is rattle on. Well, yeah, you should hear him when he's not talking on the microphone. You should hear me when I'm not talking. <laughs> he'd love to hear me ramble on about what I've come to learn about... About how and why things were done back in the day at Fender to achieve the results we know and love today. Yeah, I've talked a lot about that, and I, I don't know. The, the thing about Leo Fender, I was thinking about this a while ago. The guy was really just, he, he was really a penny pincher. I mean, they, the, they did things really in an economical way at, at the Fender factory, but... Um, if you were making guitars in the United States of America in the 50s, uh, it was hard to make a poor quality guitar because of because of the manufacturing process uh, and the machinery available at the time, you really couldn't make a junky guitar. I don't, I don't know how to describe what I'm t- trying to say here, but even... Like the student grade guitars from from back then are arguably better than than the student grade guitars you'd get today. I mean, I love old harmonies. Well, it's just it's just like anything. I mean, manufacturing wise, like houses were built better back in the day than yeah. they are now. And, yeah, in some ways, I, mean, I think yeah. you're right. But uh, in general, but you know, you look at an old harmony, and uh, it's kind of a student grade instrument. It's solid wood. All solid woods. A lot of times they have Brazilian rosewood fingerboards. You can't even get that now. They're put together with with hot hide glue, which is the gold standard as far as tone purists are concerned when it comes to acoustic guitars. I mean, they're not top of the line, but man, they're great. Really, especially for the money, you can get them for two, three hundred bucks, and it's a vintage uh, solid wood made in America hot hide glue, you know, guitar. So, even though Fender, they were kind of penny pinchers, they were, you know, I'm sure that the reason they used the capacitors that they did is because it was the lowest bidder, right? 
but everybody looks at those caps like, oh, that's the magic sauce right there. Those caps, <laughs> that's the that's the good stuff right there. And a lot of it just doesn't make any difference. But so much of make of, of making guitars back then was hands on that uh, uh, it took skilled craftsmen to. I mean, all the nuts were cut by hand. That doesn't happen at Fender and Gibson anymore. So you think it's the uh, the human aspect? I think a lot of it's the human aspect. And Leo, I mean, the guy, he was just a really sharp businessman and an engineer and uh, an economically-minded dude. He didn't even play guitar. Wasn't wasn't he and some other guy doing something else? What was what were they before? Oh yeah, he started well, Fender. Uh, his business partner was named Doc Kaufman, who kind of came out of uh, Rickenbacker. He worked for Rickenbacker oh. previously, and uh, he designed the Kaufman tremolo for for Rickenbacker. Oh. And Leo Fender and Doc Kaufman started uh, K and F you know, instruments or whatever. And they really just, they made lap steels, hmm. lap steels and amps and through the forties. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And he mentioned he, he makes McCarty era. Isn't that what he said? Yeah. McCarty era set neck single cuts. Yeah. Done the old way. And do you know who McCarty is? No, tell me about it. McCarty is kind of the Leo Fender of Gibson in the fifties. McCarty, Ted McCarty, was the president of Gibson from like 1951 or 50 or something up until the mid to late 60s. He was the president of Gibson during the golden era of Gibson. And he really had a a, a huge hand in designing some of Gibson's most famous and, and uh, uh, successful guitars like the Les Paul and the 335 and... and like Leo Fender, he didn't even play. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? That's cool. Yeah. Engineers, anyway. man. I know, right? Yeah. Thanks for the uh, for the question and more of a submission, but perfect. Alex, thank you so much, buddy. And thanks for listening. Yes, thank you. I like this next one because it's short and sweet and I can be myself when I'm talking. Okie dokie. I got a problem. Single action truss rod, no relief, super heavy strings, and still B string buzz. I'm not going to buy a new neck. This is a learning project. Thoughts? <laughs> Thanks. John in Newburgh, New York. Wow. So, single action truss rod, backed off all the way, and you still got back bow. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, so, you got big problems big problems. There are a few ways to approach this, and it gets a little controversial, too, but uh, what I do is I clamp them to where I want them and heat them up and force them to behave the way I want them to behave, you know. I made a, a neck heating iron out of a, you can get a, a hollow steel rectangular tube from Stuart McDonald, and I stuck a heating element 
one, in, just, one uh, in each side. Electric. Uh, they're they're old freezer defrosters, is what they are. I think they're um, charcoal starters. No, they're not. No, they're freezer oh. defrosters. Well, you could also use an electric yeah. charcoal starter. Uh, but I made my own. It's called a it's called a neck press. Basically, you used to be able to buy them from from. Uh, LMI, Luthiers Mercantile International, or whatever it's called. You used to be able to get them from from uh, Japan. Aria made a, a neck heating iron, a neck heat press. And you, it, do, it doesn't seem like you can get them anymore. It's kind of a, a brute force way to make a neck behave, but it's the best way, and if you know what you're doing, you can really uh, make it work. If you don't know what you're doing, you can set your binding on fire, <laughs> or your or your, your, or your dot house. markers on fire, or you can burn the crap out of the, the neck and turn the wood black or orange, bubble the paint. You know, you really have to be careful doing it. You really have to be careful doing it, but you can clamp the neck and heat it up. I've heard of some guys who use heat lamps. They'll clamp the neck to their work table with shims under the high spots, right? You clamp the neck to where you want it to be, maybe even over-clamp it a little bit, and then heat it up and then let it sit for a day. Sometimes you have to do it two times or three times to really get it perfect. But that's the way that um, I learned when I worked at the Ibanez Distribution Warehouse. That's what we did with necks, and we had a few of those Aria neck press irons. It's just a big, giant steel rectangular tube with a heating element inside and like a thermostat on it, and you can adjust the temperature, and it has a timer on it, and you clamp the neck, you clamp it, you clamp it so that you're, it's going to do what you want it to do with with shims and clamps you make it do what you want it to do you heat it up to like you know 140 150 degrees something like that and uh, then let it sit and cool off for a day and when you take it out it's going to be good it's tricky do not attempt this on a vintage instrument if you don't know what you're doing Really, really be careful. I mean, I don't even know if you'll be able to because, you you know, outside of making your own neck press like I did, you can't get them anymore. When I left that shop, I didn't have access to one anymore, so it was like, well, I better make one. So Stumac sells a big hollow steel tube that you're supposed to uh, use it to do fingerboard or fret leveling, and you can put you you put adhesive sandpaper on it and it's just a big straight edge, and you just use it to level frets or whatever. But I made mine into a neck press. And um, this is how... I mean, I, I know a lot of old-school repair guys that work on old Martins that don't have truss rods, and this is how they do it. They heat that thing up, and they make it do what they want it to do. And I've heard a lot of people say, wow, you can't do that. Wood has a memory. This is the complaints I hear. Wood has a memory. And you, you might be able to make it behave for a while, but it's going to warp again. Well, if wood has a memory, why doesn't it remember when it was straight? I mean, it, it didn't leave the factory with back bow in it. 
right? <laughs> I like your logic here. Come on now. And if if wood has such a memory, why are we able to make acoustic guitars with curvy sides? You know how they make that wood curved? Heat. They wet it, they heat it, and they bend it, and then it cools, and then it's the shape of a guitar. That's so smart. That's what you got to do with your neck. So that's the way I do them. Um, there's also... You, you can also pull the frets, plane the neck so it's straight, plane the fingerboard, but you got to remove a lot of wood to do that. And it's really not the right way to do it, I don't think. And then, when you go to refret it, you're pounding 21 wedges into the neck, and you're going to make a want to make it back bow again. I don't unless you... I mean, fr- you got to think about fret slot width and fret tang width. Every time you tap because you want the tang to be wider than the slot, every time you tap a fret into a neck, that's a wedge, and it's making the whole neck want to back bow because you're hammering 20 or more frets into your neck. Well. Yeah. So that's really the way to do it is to heat it up and clamp it. You can do it slowly. If If you're a hobbyist, if you're doing this at home, you clamp it to a table. Maybe put, so you've got a, a neck with a back bow, and you want the truss rod all the way loose. Take all the tension off the truss rod. Put like a leather shim under the first fret and a leather shim under the very end of the neck. And, uh, oh wait, no, that's backwards, because you've got back bow. Put a shim in the middle of the neck, and then clamp it on the edges, right? And then you can heat it up. Uh, I, I know a guy that does this. He'll He'll clamp necks straight attached to a like a big you know metal uh he's got like a probably the thing from Stuart mcdonald the big hollow tube and then he'll put them in the oven on the lowest setting like he's got a he's got an oven that'll do 150 or something and he puts them in the oven for 20 minutes and then takes them out i've never done that so i'm not recommending that you do that but there's more than one way to do this if you don't have a neck heating press and if you are listening to this podcast and you have something to say about this technique i'd love to hear from you i would absolutely love to hear from you because it's something that that uh guys don't talk about that much I, i don't hear much about all this most techs when they run into an old fender neck that has a single action truss rod the truss rods all the way loose and they're still back bow they go huh well that sucks that guitar's ruined. Next. <laughs> but you can fix it. It can be fixed. And that's how to, that's how I fix them. And it works. It absolutely works. I've done it time and time again. It absolutely works. It works on acoustic guitars. It works on electric guitars. But you have to be super careful because you're heating up the guitar. And if, if you've got... It really works well on a guitar where the fingerboard is glued to the neck. You know, on an old Fender, it might be a one-piece neck. It's just one piece of maple. But on a guitar that has a fingerboard that's a separate piece of wood glued to the neck and it's um, glued with hide glue, if you get it up to 140, 145, that uh, glue turns into liquid again and the whole thing will slip. And then when it cools, it dries and now it's straight. It really helps. But you can do it with a solid maple neck, too. 
it's it can be done. I really like that answer. Well, I went on and on and on. It was our shortest question and my longest answer, but moving right along. Thank right. you for the question there, John, in Newburgh, New York. Hey, Eric, another question for your podcast. Does truss, truss rod adjustments affect string tension? And do you notch or leave your saddles flat when you're installing new ones on a three-saddle setup? Cheers, Jonathan from Victoria. Uh, do truss rod adjustments affect string tension? No. I would say no. Really? Yeah. You would think that they would. Well, string tension is dictated by pitch and scale length. Now, if you loosen the truss rod and put more relief in your neck, your strings are now farther away from the neck, and the net effect oh. is that it's going to feel it's going to be more difficult to play so it might feel like there's more tension but really it's it's about it's about pitch and scale length and string gauge because the bow is in the middle of the neck while then the head stays in the same place yeah right? it really doesn't change yeah unless i'm wrong about that i mean it's something that i honestly have not thought about that much I, it's just never really crossed my mind but Truss rod tension shouldn't have any effect on s string tension. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I don't think so. And do you notch or leave your saddles flat? Oh, I assume he's talking about a Telecaster three-saddle bridge. Um, and I... No, I don't notch them. Yeah, you leave them. You have, leave them be. Have you ever notched them? Well, some of them have notches. Right. I just seem to remember you filing saddles down several years ago. I've, yeah, what you're talking about is uh, I used to angle them so that they would be intonated properly. Uh, yeah, but actually filing a notch for the string to sit in. I see. Uh, I don't like to do that because it, they'll, they can jump in and out of the, unless it's a really deep groove. And then if you're using brass, the string's going to kind of cut little notches anyway. So, no, I don't cut notches on on brass, three-saddle, telly, bridges. No, I don't. Thanks for the question. Thanks, Jonathan. Hey, Eric, always happy to hear a new podcast every month. I have a 1969 Telecaster that you did a great job of setting up for me. I like the way it plays and having medium to low action. It has the original frets, but will likely need a refret in the relatively near future. Having never gone through a before and after refret with a guitar, I'm wondering how much different it will feel and play after being refretted with the same mm. size frets. I'm worried it could lose that worn-in vibe that has made it my go-to guitar among my other Telecasters. How different can I expect it to feel? Also, is it possible to do a refret without refinishing the fretboard on a maple neck? And if not, how close will the new finish compare to the old? Thanks, Robert. Cool, Robert. Uh... It's a valid concern, you know, if you go to refret your favorite guitar and it's 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 just got the feel, you know, it's like a worn-in baseball glove, you know, uh, or baseball mitt. I, we sh I shouldn't do sports references. We've I think glove is the right word, though, isn't it? I don't know. It's like a worn-in pair of boots. We'll yeah. go with something I know. I don't know baseball mitts. I know boots. Uh, it's a worn-in, it's got a, that worn-in feel and... 
you're worried that it's going to lose that vibe when you have it refretted, it's a valid concern uh, because it, it, the truth is it will change the way it feels. It, it has to. Um, if we're going to change, if the frets are worn out enough to warrant a refret, then even if you go with the same size fret that it originally had, um, we're changing the height of the frets because your frets are worn. So really it will feel a bit more like it did when it was new. It still should feel a little better than that because it, you know, you're used to it. But uh, the truth is, it it absolutely will change the feel of your guitar. I mean, and it, it depends on how drastically worn the frets are, and it depends on what size of fret you're going to put on. But yeah, that is. It is true, it will change the feel. And for that reason, I have I have a guitar that I really, I desperately need to refret, but it feels so nice. It's just, it just, I just love the way it plays. But it really needs frets, and I'm just putting it off and putting it off because I don't want to change the way it feels. And it will. It will change the way it feels, but it has to be done. You get to a point where the thing just won't play anymore. It's like tires on a car, man, and once they're bald, that's it. You, you gotta get frets done when it when it reaches a certain point. So it if it's a if it's between having it feel different and not being able to play it, <laughs> I'm gonna go with having it feel a little different. It shouldn't feel bad to you, but it's gonna take it will take a little time for you to get used to it again for sure. Uh, he also asks, is it possible to do a refret without refinishing the fretboard on a maple neck? Not only is it possible, but that's the way I recommend to do it. Um, I really uh, would almost never recommend refinishing the uh, the neck. Um, I, I do it all the time. Uh, refret, finished maple neck, no problem. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, a lot of, like on fenders, they fret the neck and then paint it. So it's kind of tricky to get those frets out because the paint is actually on top of the frets, but um, it's worn off and then... It's kind of built up on the yeah, sides. Yeah, kind of built up on the sides. So I take a blade and, and you have to kind of cut the fret out before you take it out. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm I, I'm able to do it without having to refinish the the fingerboard. Great. Thanks for the question. Thanks, Robert. All right, last question. Eric, I have been interested in Resoglass, Supro, and Valco-type guitars lately, and I have some questions. Please explain or give us your thoughts on the zero fret. Why is it there, why is it there and does any, does it really do anything? Also, you have discussed many types of bridges for electric guitars, but what about rosewood bridges on electric guitars, like early Dan Electros? When are they appropriate, and which types are best for certain applications? I know you're not a fan of Bigsby's, but is rosewood a good choice for a Bigsby? If not, what would be a good bridge for a Bigsby? I often see a tunomatic on a rosewood archtop type bass. Your thoughts? I love the show. And all the questions in the past few episodes have been great. I hope you, Melissa, and Isaac are well. Zach. Thanks, Zach. That's my buddy, Zach. He lives down the street. He's a nice guy. He sure is. Um, The zero fret. 
You know, I heard years ago that that was Chet Atkins' idea. Uh, and I believed that for many, many years until I saw an old parlor guitar, like a hundred years old or more, and it had a zero fret. Wow. I, I think that... I don't think it was Chet Atkins' idea, but um, it certainly became popular uh, when Gretsch did it on, like, the the Chet Atkins model. Um, the zero fret is just replacing your nut with a fret, and then the nut is now just a string guide. So, the theory is that it's supposed to, um, it's supposed to decrease uh, friction in the nut slots, and help you stay in tune better because uh, because the strings are now resting on a fret, not the first fret, but the zero fret, right? Right. Uh, kind of a uh, I don't know. It's kind of a goofy thing, but it wouldn't stop me from loving a guitar that I that I really had an affinity towards. Um, if I, yeah, yeah. I, what does it do? Why is it there? It's just another way to do it. That's all. It's just another way to do it. It's 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 almost like your guitar doesn't have a nut. It just it's like it's like you've capoed up to a fret or something. It's kind of it's trying to take the nut out of the equation of the strings binding in the nut. But when your nut is cut properly and you put some graphite in there, it's not a problem. So uh, it's kind of a solution to a problem that shouldn't really exist, (laughs) if that makes sense. But it's a real 60s way to do things. It was popular for a while. Interesting. Yeah. What was his other question? Uh, Rosewood Bridge. When is a Rosewood-type bridge appropriate well you know uh when i think about rosewood bridges i think about archtop guitars um it has a bit of a softer sound and it's probably not the bridge that i would recommend for using with a bigsby um Dan, you're right, Dan Electros do have a little rosewood popsicle stick down there for a bridge. Uh, I don't really think that that was anything other than just a cheap way to make a bridge for, for Nat, when Nat Daniel designed those guitars. I, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, they're, those are quirky guitars, and there's a world of difference between a rosewood, a rosewood archtop bridge and a rosewood Dan Electro saddle um they're both made of rosewood but the similarities really end there and uh i it's i don't normally recommend a rosewood bridge unless you're a kind of a jazz purist guy you know using flat wounds using an archtop guitar and you want a real woody tone it it's 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 uh it's a less bright tone than a metal bridge generally speaking. I guess that makes sense. Absolutely it does. 
Thanks for the question, Zach, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you for all the questions. Keep them coming. If you don't have a guitar horror story, you can submit any question uh, or comment that you'd like. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you disagree with me. I've mentioned that a few times, and I really do. I really would love to hear uh, from guys that have a different opinion than I do, or if you feel like I'm wrong about something. Man, I'd love to hear from you. I'm not going to argue with you at all. I would love to have all kinds of different opinions uh, aired on the show because, um, you know, it. I'm the host, so my opinions are going to dominate the show, but I'm not always right, guys. Th- you know, some things that I say are really just opinions. For example, I remember uh, uh, ranking on uh, on boutique strings, you know? That's just my opinion. Maybe you love boutique strings. Now, that's a strong opinion that I hold, and I'm sticking to it, <laughs> right? But uh, uh, my point is, if you disagree with anything that you hear me say on the show, I'd love to hear your feedback on why you disagree and uh, uh, any other comments or questions you might have. And if you do have a guitar repair horror story for the October episode, I'd love to hear that as well. Leave me a voicemail or send me a text at 757-774-8482. You can go to ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Send me your question or comment there by clicking on the contact link. And, uh, yeah, you might as well uh, visit some of the other links on that website as well. I've got links to... The guitars that I build, pin-up custom guitars, there's information there about all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next month.